0: Hey, produce people, welcome back to the Produce Industry Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kelly, along with my co-host for the series, John Papp. Now, today is October 9th, 2023, and welcome back to the series all about global history of fresh produce. I mean, every month we talk about literature, religion, earliest human civilizations, arts, and pop culture. John, welcome back to another month, man.
1: Oh, what's there not to love when you're talking about fresh produce and history?
0: Right? Well, listen, if you're just joining us, okay, last month we talked about maize. No, 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 not getting stuck in a maze. Actually, maize, which is actually now in the terms of today, John, is...
1: Beautiful corn. Corn. You get be stuck in a maze, a, ma- a maze maze.
0: Yeah, you know, I told you, John, when I was in Indianapolis, I was like, man, I got to do like a children of the corn thing and I come out of the corn walking out. I never was able to do it. I ain't gonna lie. I was not able to do it. And I was, I'm kind of, kind of bummed. I'm looking back at that like I should have, I should have done it. Uh, I'm sure you'll be back. I will. Well, today, today's a fun day. It's a fruit, maybe a vegetable. I mean, we're gonna tell you what it is, but it's one of those conspiracy theory ones, right? That people are like, is it? No, there's no way, right? We're talking all things tomatoes today, and we're going to give you the history. We're going to talk about what this thing is, what it is. And uh, John, I see you get us kicked off. I mean, well, I mean, what is a tomato, right? What is a tomato?
1: Well, personally, I'm not a big tomato fan, raw tomato. I like tomato you? sauce. I like ketchup, all tomato stuff, but I, don't, I just don't, I'm not a big tomato eater. You don't what? fancy the tomato? No, I don't fancy it. I really don't. I might just have to try more of them. I don't know. But what Listen,
0: is- no, I'll be serious. You do, because I didn't like it before either. And, you know, it takes time. But I started liking more of the, you know, those like melody ones too, that are like yellows and oranges and purples. And, you know, I went to Wishnasky Farms right here in Lakeland, Florida, and they have a garden out front or in the back, however you want to figure out the position of their building, okay? The chef of their, their, their kitchen inside comes out and picks what's in the garden. And literally they had tomatoes and the chef came around, picked a couple out, boom, popped them right in her mouth. They were the sweetest tomatoes, uh, like little yellow tomatoes I've ever had, man. So like uh, it's sometimes it's, sometimes it just takes a moment to change and you're like, oh, I got to have these, right? But I always have to have my tomatoes diced. Like diced, all the way diced, man, right? That's it. That
1: was my tomato story, okay? Now get into what is a tomato? What is a tomato? Well, it's in a family that includes deadly nightshades, right? And that's going to set the tone for a <laughs> lot of what we're going to talk about. They <laughs> hit it hard right off the bat, right? Oh, yeah. A nightshade family member with other poisonous plants. But but other popular members of the Salance family includes peppers, potatoes, Tomatillos, eggplant, petunias, even tobacco. So, you yeah, know, there's still plenty of members in that family that are not deadly. And it it's actually a fruit, botanically speaking. It's a berry of the plant. So keep that in mind. We're gonna, it's gonna be a lot of things you got to keep in mind because all of these things are gonna creep back up later. Today it's actually the most economically important vegetable. I'm gonna use this interchangeably because it's vegetable from a culinary standpoint. It's a most important vegetable crop in the world, and it's the top produced vegetable in the world. There's uh, about over 10,000 tomato varieties, I think, today, which is, again, crazy. But where did this tomato come from, right? So the tomato obviously was a wild plant at one point in time, and they still can grow in the wild. And there's been disputes over how this plant became domesticated over the decades. But science, of course, continues to become more advanced and cover more of that history. So recent research in the genetics of the tomato actually indicates that the cherry-sized tomato originated in Ecuador around 80,000 years ago without any human domestication. All right. So that's that's the starting point that we're aware of today. Now, humans in South America eventually cultivated those early tomatoes uh, and didn't develop those larger fruits that we know today. Okay. That's that's for way further down the road. We're talking about these small ones. Now, over the time, those cherry-sized tomatoes spread up north towards Mesoamerica. So we're talking about modern day Mexico, either by humans or by birds or some other combination of those natural routes. It was these smaller fruited tomatoes that were then domesticated in Mesoamerica about seven thousand years ago into our modern tomato. The first real uh, documentation of cultiv- cultivation of tomato that we have from the Aztecs about as early as seven hundred A.D. They were cultivating and eating this, and they called it the tomato, which is in their language nahuatl, which means swelling fruit or fat water fruit. Which you know is is a pretty accurate way to describe. I it. mean,
0: I could jump back in and say, is
1: it a tomato or a tomato? Oh, sure, sure. There we go again. Yeah. Well, we're right back to our potato episode. <laughs> if you haven't listened to our potato episode, listen to it next. at yeah, uh, five five five. <laughs> but coming back to the tomato or tomato. So basically this, this crop was actually revered by Aztecs and the other Mesoamerican tribes as being a re- representation of fertility and was thought to actually possess spiritual qualities uh, such as fending off evil spirits. So again, we've seen this This reoccurrence theme of these kinds of fruits serving fertility purposes as well as fending off evil spirits. And the Aztecs actually raised several varieties of the tomato. The big red tomatoes, so I told you this would eventually show up, they called those actually the zik tomato, and they called the small green tomatoes tomato. And those are actually the tomatillos. So we already start to see the segregation of those two kinds of fruits. And the Aztecs actually preferred the tomatillo to the tomato. Fun fact. And the tomato was a common ingredient in their sauces and their stews and their soups. It was also dried and used as seasoning. So they they didn't eat the tomato or the tomatillo in some cases raw. It was an ingredient. It was too um, acidic to be enjoyed on its own generally. And they grew these tomatoes on floating gardens called chinampas, which is pretty interesting. Well, so Aztecs were exercising some level of aquaponics all the way back when. How does this tomato start to really expand? So tomatoes enter the European consciousness, of course, following the conquest of the Aztecs by the Spanish Conquistador Hernán Cortés. And when Hernán Cortez showed up in 1521, he showed up with a Franciscan friar and chronicler, Sahagún, uh, which- Sound particularly- good. Sounds good. So good. <laughs> <laughs> which- This friar actually reported that the Aztecs cultivated a great variety of tomatoes of different sizes, shapes, colors, and the Spanish even adopted this term that the Aztecs gave tomato as tomate. So you can see where this word is starting to to show up. Eventually, this tomato arrives into Spain, uh, into the port of Seville, which was basically the port of entry in Europe during the exploration period. And basically... Plants were not seen as something that had to be recorded on introduction to the ports into Europe. Everything else was, you know, animals and metals and things of that, but but plants were not. So we don't have really any documentation of when the tomato would have entered into Europe, but we have to assume it was around this period. And at the time when this arrived, it spread very quickly into Italy. Now Italy, large swathes of Italy were actually part of the Spanish empire. Um, during this period of time. And then due to many of the Italian merchants sailing under Portuguese and Spanish flags, and that the fact that the kingdom of Naples was actually under Spanish rule, these exotic plants quickly, again, descended into Italy. And when they first reached Europe as a whole, Italy included, it was really seen as an exotic ornamental plant. And we've seen that before with potatoes. They didn't think of this as something they had to eat. But fast forward about 50-ish or so years, we get the first recorded account of the tomato in Europe, which was written by the household steward of Cosimo de' Medici. And de' Medici was, a for for listeners who don't know, was a big family with a very big impact in Renaissance Europe. Uh, And the Medicis, in this case, Cosimo was the Grand Duke of Tuscany in this period. And so we have the first recording of this in 1548. And the steward didn't really write anything overly exciting, except that basically informing Cosimo that a basket of tomatoes sent from the Duke's estate near Florence had arrived. That's really that's really all we have. They didn't say anything about flavor, but again, it's unlikely that they tasted it. It was more for ornamental purposes. Now, the first description of a tomato that we have came actually four years prior to that by a Pietro Andrea Mattioli, in 1544. And he actually suggested it was a new type of eggplant. And he was drawing comparisons between the tomato and its poisonous cousins. So that's kind of where this eggplant comparison came to. In his descriptions, he actually noted that it was a South American fruit of about a red, yellow color, and it could could be cooked into acceptable dishes using salt, pepper, and oil. And by 1554, The tomato actually achieved its own culinary identity. So that's 10 years after this uh, Mattioli description. And it was now referred to as the pomidoro or golden apple. So if we call things Pomodoro, you've heard that probably um, our listeners have heard that today. So that's where that word is coming from. That translates into golden apple. Now, as evidenced by that name, the first tomatoes that arrived in Europe were actually yellow. They're not those round spherical gorgeous tomatoes that we all think of when we think of a tomato today. So they were yellow. And so we start to see more recordings of the tomato plant across Europe. You have your first published illustration of it by a Flemish artist in 1553. You have the Fr- French uh, labeling the tomato, the Pomme Amour, which is the apple of love. And you have in England and Germany, uh, they really regarded it also as an ornamental, but in addition a dangerous poisonous plant again because it's part of that mandrake family so going back to this age of exploration you know the european colonists were not really interested in learning about the cuisines of the new world they that they conquered they didn't have the proper knowledge on how to prepare tomatoes or any other new world crops to make them edible and this was reason really a primary reason why it took so long for the tomato to gain traction into Italian cuisine, which is where the tomato was really taking a foothold initially. And actually the first Italian cookbook to actually include the tomato sauce was written by an Italian chef, uh, Latini, in two volumes in 1692 and 1694. So you're talking almost a little under 200 years later. And it's important to remember also during this time that Italy didn't exist as it does today. Prior to its unification in 1861, it was just a, a collection of fragmented kingdoms and duchies and city-states and Italian cuisine was then defined by these strict separations also and but in relation to class and location. So every different social strata and different region preferred different kinds of vegetables. And so the wealthy classes in Italy were actually maybe this is not intuitive, but were actually more experimental with their diets, uh, and trying out different things, including tomatoes. So you're gonna find that if you were living in Renaissance Italy during this time and you are a rich duke you're going to be trying tomatoes. The peasants are not, even though it's considered dangerous. Think about exotic curiosities of today. Like if you go to Japan and they have that deadly puffer fish that you can eat, you know, the, the ultra wealthy will try it, even though they know it's dangerous. They're you the ones could die. It. Like it's like a thrill, right? It's exactly. Kind of like bungee jumping, man. Like <laughs> <laughs> so that was a, so. If you can wrap your head around it, that, was the tomato in Renaissance Italy? Your today puffer fish. That's well, what sure. was happening. But that wasn't all, right? And I think um, there was another collection of unfortunate events that were happening that put a damper on the tomato when it entered Europe.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen. I mean, when you think about that puffer fish, like I don't even want to come near that in the in the ocean. N- neither on my plate, right? Like, you know, I, I think that there was a lot of tomato hesitancy, you know, as the years went on. Obviously, from thrill seeking eating, right? <laughs> like, seriously, yeah. to even the witch craze, right? Between thirteen hundred and and sixteen fifty, right. Thousands of Europeans, mostly women, okay, were executed for practicing witchcraft uh, in a church and government-sanctioned mass. It's it was crazy. It was called the witch craze, John. And when doing some of the research on this, you know, you start to think about how impactful has fruit been on the world. Like, you know what I mean? Like. Holy crap like you know from we were doing this right from grains you know to to berries and, and and more but you know all all at the time you know of the tomatoes importation around 1540 you know uh, diligent witch hunters uh, were particularly interested in uh, discerning the makeup of a flying ointment the goo which is smeared on their broomsticks or on themselves the pre, you know the pre broomsticks this is Potential magical gunk uh, that did more than enable airborne meetings uh, with the devil, John. Like, like, okay, like, are you hearing me here? Like, this was a witch craze that happened, and we're talking about the tomato. Yeah, you know, just in case we lost you for a second, this is not a Halloween episode. Okay, this is this is all
1: be now. We're talking about. Witch- <laughs> the- <laughs>
0: But it could also transform the witch or her unwilling dupe into a werewolf. I mean, the key ingredients recorded by the pope's physician Andres Laguna in 1545 were agreed by a consensus to be hemlock, nightshade, Henbane and mandrake, the final three of which are the tomatoes' close botanical relatives. Tomato eating was best left placed like Spain, right? Where the Spanish uh, Inquisitions had at least temporary declared belief in witchcraft, right? So it was okay if you believed in witchcraft, everybody and, you know, the acquisitions of witchcraft, you know, it was heretical. So it doesn't matter. If you believed in witchcraft, you can eat the tomato, right? I, I don't want to smear any part of a tomato anywhere. I just want to be clear with everybody. There's no smearing of the tomatoes, okay? And then moving into Like, you know, tomatoes being poisonous. John, you know, tomatoes gained the reputation, you know, in the 1700s as a poisonous fruit. Oh, wait, it's a fruit or a vegetable? Mm. Kids ask that question all the time. We're going to get to that one. Is it a fruit or a vegetable? So, so much, you know, saying it was a poisonous fruit in the 1700s, they were nicknamed poisoned apples. Oh, that is a good nickname for them. If you think about like a an apple that goes soggy, right? And that's like a tomato. Like, right. Jeez. Well to right. you know, but well that to that do Europeans that. were in the habit of eating, you know, the pewter dishes made uh with a high concentration of lead because tomatoes are so high in acidity. When it placed on particular tableware, the fruit would literally leach lead from the plate, uh, resulting in many deaths from lead poison. That's that's not funny, but that's <laughs> That's a crazy, like thinking about that, it's like you're literally looking at your plate and you're like, okay, this doesn't look right to me. Now here's another one, John. Likely not true. Okay. Check our references, everybody. Likely not true. Tomatoes aren't acid enough. Pewter dishes were never common enough and lead poison accumulates too slowly to be linked to a specific meal. Again, we're not sure, you know, we're gonna throw that one up in the air. Um, then, you know, Renaissance makes ancient writings cool. The rediscovery and fresh appreciation of classic antiquity, right? The embrace of classism that embodied the Renaissance was by no means restricted to art and architecture. Ancient literature, science, and medicine, such as it is, were all unearthed and sourced for clues about how to live a better life. And Renaissance, the Italians believed there was so much to learn from Galen. Galen was a physician who lived in ancient Rome. After he. Hippocrates Galen and Pergamum was the ancient world's greatest doctor and personal physician to Marcus Aurelius now during the renaissance Galen's 1400 year old writing based on theories established another 500 years earlier were being rediscovered and reinterpreted so Galen's theory required classifying foods hot or cold Right, which is which is actually a really good classification, whether wet or dry. Another good, okay, that's another good classification. That's why we call things the wet rack and the dry rack. Well, you know, very simple in in, yeah. uh, in produce terms. So, public scrambled to figure out ways that the new imports were actually old plants that could slot into the existing system. The alternative was terrifying. Okay, John, accepting that the great Galen had never heard of these plants would imply that ancients hadn't known everything wait what that means that perhaps the world was in some sense unknowable that the Garden of Eden possibly never existed John oh dear like
1: oh dear we cannot it, have
0: that it's <laughs> getting deep it's getting deep so bits of Galen's writings refer to plants or animals whose identities had never been nailed down an American arrival seem like candidates to fill in the gaps one such mystery plant uh I, I can't even read the name um it's 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 in like hieroglyphics everyone but it translates That's Greek. Into,
1: That's Greek. It's all Greek, go, Greek to you, man. It's, it's all, all Greek,
0: Greek to me, brother. But it translates to wolf something, maybe wolf banisher. And then you got it, it, it trends, was that translates into, was that Lyco Persian? Lyco
1: Persian? Persian? Uh, yeah. Uh,
0: but during the word of age, age of Exploration, mistranscribed, right? To that Lyco Persian wolf peach. This is interesting, like very interesting. Galen describes it as a poisonous Egyptian plant. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That with strong smelling yellow juice and rib celery-like stock. Isn't that interesting how many times the definition or description has changed of this poor tomato? Like this poor tomato. This
1: is this is the description of the wolf peach, too. This is what they're trying to marry the tomato to. That description you just read about the Egyptian plant.
0: Oh my gosh. I mean, think about it. I guess, yeah, um, it's not too off. It's it's getting I mean, it's it's changing over time, right? As it said, this classification. So Galen describes it as a poisonous Egyptian plant with a strong smell in yellow juice and rib celery stock. Okay, that's you're right. Oh, you're right. It does. At least as early as 1561, Italian and Spanish botanists, no doubt, aware of witch finders werewolf suspicions were kicking around the idea that the wolf peach and the tomato could be one and the same. So in the 18th century, the tomato species was named Lycopersion. Persion? How do you say that? Lycopersion. persicon, Okay. Esculentum, which literally means edible wolf peach. Oh my God. <laughs> The edible wolf it's edible, teach everyone.
1: Though. It's edible though, it's
0: come yeah. Well, now it's not witchcraft. So based on the humoral system of medicine, uh, then he used that John Gerard of London declared that tomatoes were very cold, perhaps in the highest degree of coldness in his influential herbal of 1597. Probably because why they were watery. So how how insane was that, right? Uh, I think that's a, that's just a crazy leading up to how even tomatoes were introduced in America, but. Before we get into tomatoes introduced in America, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from some sponsors, and then John's going to start us right back in talking about when tomatoes were introduced to America. Discover Orchard Freshness on Amazon Fresh with Arctic Apple Slices. Arctic Apple stays orchard fresh longer than other pre-packaged, pre-sliced apples. This means less waste and no more half-eaten apples. Plus, You'll love the undeniable freshly picked flavor. Arctic apple slices are available in convenient grab-and-go bags in both Arctic Golden or Arctic Granny varieties in select markets on Amazon Fresh. Packable, snackable, 100% irresistible. In the heat of summer... You're just counting the days until cooler weather and all those fabulous fall flavors. Packed with the refreshing flavor everyone loves. Noble Florida Starburst Pomelo's. The largest citrus on earth and the perfect sweet fall treat you've been waiting for. Perfectly ripe for a limited time. Look to noblecitrus.com on where to purchase your next Noble Florida Starburst Pomelo's. Are you ready to enhance your skills? Every day we are tasked to make fast, effective decisions to keep up with the fast-paced produce industry. At AgTools, we take the pressure off of gathering data to help make your day easier and more enjoyable. Connecting the supply chain with AgTools is unique, practical, and easy. AgTools can be used from multiple angles of the produce industry, from farmers all the way to logistics companies. We call that 360-degree decision-making day after day. Visit us at www.agtechtools.com to gain more reliable and relevant data to see more, achieve more. And now, back to our show. Welcome back, everyone, to the global history of fresh produce with myself, Patrick Kelly, and my co host, John Pap. John, tomato, tomato, what is going on? Witchcrafts, warlords, and a little bit of nightshade.
1: Like, right, man? Oh, man. That tomato just talking about being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, next time something happens, I'm going to be like, I'm just a tomato in this incident. Like, I mean, really. I mean, the tomato, the poor tomato just entered Europe at the, possibly the worst time between the witch craze and then the Renaissance, with the, like, you're talking about with the reintroduction of ink ancient writings that married it to the wolf peach. It's not a good setup for the tomato, but there starts to see some light here. Now, like you mentioned before the break, um, tomatoes are coming to America again. Now they were never in North America, at least as far as we know, but they do make their way into North America vis-a-vis Well, we don't know exactly how it could have been through British colonists. It could have been through slaves that brought seeds over from the Caribbean into North America. So we're not really sure how it got there, but it did get there. So when the British colonists arrived in America before the tomato really gained common usage, like you said, John Gerard basically said that tomato was just, I mean, these are his words, not mine. They were of rank and stinking savour, So not a great endorsement of the tomato. So it wasn't something that was widely consumed in Britain at this time. However, there was still signs that this plant was being grown. You do have an herbalist in 1710, a William Solomon that printed a writing which he you notes, know, seen tomatoes growing in the Carolinas. So that this is something that's being grown. Even Thomas Jefferson, which I think all of us listeners and ourselves will know, actually ate tomatoes himself, or at least grew them in the late 1700s. So tomatoes are are being recognized and either consumed to some level or used as an ornament. Once it gets into America, again, primarily in the south, it eventually spreads pretty quickly like we saw through Europe, eventually reaches Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey by the early 1800s. But again, poor tomato, despite its rapid expansion, it was not quite as beloved as you might imagine. So you have an editor of Philadelphia's Germantown Telegraph who wrote that the tomatoes were quote, a very poor garden. Decoction with a bad smell. And it's funny that people keep talking about the smell of the tomato. I'm I'm no
0: I've noticed that too, because I'm not gonna lie. The last time I grabbed a tomato, I wasn't smelling it.
1: No, I mean I smell the plant. I have a, a tomato garden in my house and I smell the plant. I mean it smells. But I think Smells I was like, why? yeah. I, don't know. I, I mean, I agree with smell, smell on the plant. It's <laughs> talking about poor fruit. That poor guy gets cut open and smell. They're very sensitive to smell, I guess, back then. But he wasn't the only one. A Pennsylvania resident wrote in the late 1820s at J.B. Garber quote, "Hardly two persons in a hundred on first tasting it thought they would ever be induced to taste that sour trash a second time." Also, not a great endorsement. And then finally, you have an editor of the floor, Florida agriculturalist, who wrote in 1836. That's the, that the tomato was, quote, an errant humbug and deserved forthwith to be consigned to the tomb of the Capulets. So <laughs> we're seeing not a great receipt of the tomato across America at this point, but something does give way to its expansion. And there's a story, puts itself in 1820, and there's this Colonel Robert Gibbon Johnson. And Johnson was a, as, as you might suggest from his name, it was a colonel, but also an avid horticulturalist. And the story goes that he was going to consume a tomato on the courthouse steps of Salem, New Jersey on the morning of June 28th, 1820. And he was going to do this because he wanted to prove that contrary to belief to most people at that time, that tomatoes were not poisonous. And despite dire warnings from his personal physician, and his physician, mind you, predicted apparently that the foolish colonial will foam and froth at the mouth and double over with appendicitis should he be unlike by some unlikely chance survive his skin will stick to his stomach and cause cancer so this is the the setting of the stage of what's going to happen they are so nice um, <laughs> accounts of the event suggest that hundreds maybe thousands of onlookers flocked to the courthouse to watch this amazing spectacle of this distinguished gentleman causing his own demise by eating poisonous tomatoes. And instead they were shocked when the colonel, accompanied by sp- now, I love this little, this little <laughs> sprinkle of detail here. He was accompanied by a small band he had hired for theatrical effect. <laughs> a little you know. band in the back, like, all right, so paint this picture in your mind. So they were shocked when the colonel ate the tomato, not just one, but tons of tomatoes. And survived. In fact, it is said the only thing that died that day was the long held belief that tomatoes are poisonous. <laughs> now, was this story true? Colonel Johnson was indeed a public display, uh, was was a actual person, and was a re- reputable enough uh, gentleman of this time. But it's quite questionable that this event actually happened. You know, it's pretty widely accepted that tomato actually gained popularity as a food source shortly. After 1820, yes, but by the mid-1800s, even before the tomato was still widely being planted and available in dozens of different cultivars. So the chances that this happened is unlikely, but it is a legend and a myth that people do circulate quite a bit. And it's a fun story. Who doesn't like a good story?
0: I mean, listen, uh, this tomato, like you said, wrong place at the wrong
1: (laughs) time. Uh, Makes for great, great history, though. I
0: mean it does. I mean that 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 court you know ruling and like who would have thought like tomatoes were the part of the civil war.
1: We're getting to that one.
0: Like you know what I mean? This this is all stuff that that is just crazy, right? You know, so I think you know, I think you keep going keep going with it. I know, listen, everyone. There's so much information about tomatoes and, you know, we didn't even uh, tell you this at the beginning of the episode, but this is going to be a Mm two-parter. Okay. So if you've made it this far, we're going to conclude up a little bit more. And then we've got a special guest that's going to join us for the two-parter as well. Right, John? So that's right. go ahead, John, let's, let's keep going with this and get this, get the information out to our listeners and keep them, you know, wanting more.
1: One more tomatoes. You have this wonderful story about Johnson, which apparently kicks up the the gear for tomato popularity. But as we've seen <laughs> time again, the tomato hits another roadblock, and this time in the form of a very small worm. By 1822, you have hundreds of tomato recipes appearing in local periodicals and newspapers. So again, there's evidence that the tomato is taking hands in popularity. There's still rumors flying around the plant's potential poison. Okay, so by the 1830s. The love of this tomato was cultivated in New York, a new concern emerged, the green tomato worm. Now this worm measures about three to four inches in length, has a horn sticking out of its back. So just Google green tomato wor- worm when you get to a phone or a computer, not while you're driving, of course, and you'll see what this thing looks like. And this worm began taking over tomato patches across the state of New York and then eventually other parts of the country. Now it's believed that a mere brush with such a worm could result in death. And the description was quite chilling. This is a quote. It says, the tomato in all of our gardens is infested with a very large, thick-bodied green worm with oblique white sterols along its sides and a curved thorn-like horn at the end of its back. And even Ralph Waldo Emerson, famous writer at the time, he even feared the presence of the tomato-loving worm. So he, he wrote that they were, quote, an object of much terror it being currently regarded as poisonous and imparting a poisonous quality to the fruit if I should chance to crawl upon it. So you can see this is spectacle spreading throughout the populace. Uh, You have a Dr. Fuller in New York who was quoted in the Syracuse standard saying that he had found a five inch tomato worm in his garden. He captured the worm in a bottle and said, quote, it was as poisonous as a rattlesnake. And when it would throw spittle at its prey, and according wow. to Fuller's account, once the skin came into contact with the spittle, it swelled immediately. A few hours later, the victim would seize up and die. So, And he, he called this worm, quote, a new enemy to human existence. So again, poor tomato. Very but poor tomato. Luckily, to the tomato's salvation, if you will, an entomologist uh, by the name of Benjamin Walsh argued that the dreaded tomato worm wouldn't hurt a flea. So you have this completely different interpretation of this worm. It ended up proving correct that this worm did absolutely nothing to anybody. Where these rumors started, who knew? Who knows? You know this. Like a lot of things in history, when things are written down, it's very hard to always trace where the start of that was. But eventually, this this fear subsides, and as agricultural societies start to rise more in the U.S., farmers begin investigating the tomatoes' use and experimenting more with its varieties. So we were are so kind of situated now in the early side of the mid 1800s. And as we move more into the mid 1800s, now we're we're going into the Civil War. Yep, and the Civil War. Would you know it? No, it's not going to do something bad for the tomato, which we've seen time and time again. Well, I think it's another game changer for the tomato, It's another right? game. Another the game. game. This, this time, it's, it's the, the right place. He's changed himself again. Like, <laughs> this time, it's the right place at the right time. The Civil War is upon us. Canneries are booming, okay? They need to get food preserved two soldiers. And the tomatoes, and it actually ended up being the perfect product for canning. They held up well during the canning process, and they really became the star, well, one of the star foodstuffs of the Civil War. And it really drew, drew uh, in demand for tomatoes during the Civil War. So much so that even after the war, the demand for canned products, specifically tomatoes, actually grew the soldiers that came back from the war, having consumed all these canned tomatoes said, this stuff is good. I want some more. And so you had this complete new industry that formed around canned tomatoes after the civil war. Uh, and for that, more farmers starting to grow tomatoes. Still on the on the heels of 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 the Civil War, there's a lot of rebuilding, right? We have the whole Reconstruction period, and part of that Reconstruction period, the government passed a Tariff Act of 1883, which would, was really aimed to help the South's farmers after the war protect their crops. So they were important. They basically placed import tariffs on vegetables, okay, to protect the South farmers from imports and. In 1886, so three years after this tariff went into effect, a collector for the Port of New York, his last name was Hedden, charged an importer who uh, was run by John Nix of various, you know, he imported various products. One, of course, being our tomato. Hedden basically slapped a duty of 10% on the tomatoes he imported from the West Indies in accordance with the tariff. Okay, fine. Hedden said, the Nix tomatoes were, quote, vegetables in their natural state or in salt or in brine, not especially enumerated or provided for in this act. All right. So that was Hedden's argument. Nix said, mm, I don't think so. He said that the tomatoes were, quote, fruits, green, ripe or dried and not especially enumerated or provided for in this act. And accordingly, they wanted their money back. Okay. So there's a disagreement. So Hedden on behalf of the government in ways is saying that tomato is vegetable and Nix is saying no, it's a fruit. So here comes the debate, right? The argument got so contentious that it actually reached the Supreme Court, 1893 in the case of Nix versus Hedden. So you can can go look this up, you don't believe me, but there's an actual Supreme Court case on a ruling of a tomato. And the justices actually ruled that the common usage of the tomato in this case, trumped the technical definition. They declared that the tomatoes were to be vegetables because they are provisions which, quote, are grown in kitchen gardens and which, whether eaten, cooked, or raw, are like potatoes, carrots, parsnips, turnips, beets, cauliflower, cabbage, celery, and lettuce, usually served at dinner in, with, or after the soup, fish, or meats, which constitute the principal part of the repast and not like fruits generally, as dessert.
0: You're going to have like creme brulee with tomato on it instead of a raspberry? Like, what are we doing? What are we talking about? Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Like, what are we talking about here? Right? So uh, it's crazy how it's gone through all of the changes. Like I said, it's kind of gotten a bad rap until now. But listen, everyone, that... Is the tomato, right? So we have reached the apex of the court system in the U.S. and seemingly on the rise as a now popular vegetable. We, we figured it out. It is a vegetable. Wait, is it a fruit or a vegetable? Well, like I said, the debate happened and Supreme Court in 1893 made the decision. So, but it wasn't a court case that magically made the tomato desirable. When we return for part two of our exhilarating tomato fest, We will find out how this centuries old polarizing embattled vegetable evolved into the celebrity it is today. We're going to be talking about big boys, San Marzonos, flavor savers, and we'll have a special guest joining us. So until next time, I'm Patrick Kelly. I'm John Pap. Have a good one, everyone. You've been listening to the Produce Industry Podcast with Patrick Kelly. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Anchor to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Produce Industry Podcast. Until next time, see you in the fields or on the horizon.